0: Well, good morning once again everyone and if you're with us online welcome it's great to have you with us uh, if you'd like to open your Bibles please to Jonah chapter 4 and just as you're turning to that in your Bibles or in your corner post um, can I just encourage us all I think one of the most important things that we do at church each week or one of the most important opportunities that we have each week is to pray together you would have many of you would have heard this um, the story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, of people that came to his church. It was a massive church um, called the Tabernacle in England. Um, And uh, he had a visitor that came to church one weekend. He said, would you like to know the secret, the the power room of our church? And and the the visitor said, of course. And he took them downstairs. And there was this underground uh, prayer meeting in the basement of the church, filled with hundreds of people praying. And can I just say to us, uh, Cornerstone, Really, that's the secret, isn't it, Um, is we are weak, but God is strong, and as we come before him in prayer, um, all of heaven moves, and the world is a different place. So our prayer meeting here starts at 9.15, and we've actually moved it from upstairs across the way to the uh, creche. So 9.15, so if you do the math in your head, what time do you need to leave from home in the morning? To get here. And if you're thinking, yes, but I've got young kids, can I say to you, all the parents, that is one of the best places where discipleship can happen. What could be better than to model to our children prayer? Um, so if you've got young children, bring them. They're more than welcome. I'm going to read from Jonah chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 1, and this is God's word. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, And waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. But Jonah was not happy. and And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. Which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right? to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people. cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Let's pray. Lord, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. What an inestimable privilege it is, Lord, to come before you, the living God, this morning and your throne in heaven. Indeed, Lord, we can come into your presence because the curtain of the temple has been torn in two and we now have immediate access to you. We no longer need to fear your anger, for we have been made righteous in your sight. We have a lamb over us who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we sit at your feet now and as we consider your word, we pray that you would do that supernatural work of your Holy Spirit, that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Convict us of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. And Comfort us with the knowledge of the gospel, of your love for us in Christ. Lord, where there is doubt, may you replace it with faith. And where there is sin, may you replace it with obedience. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you say if I asked whether or not you are an angry person? I wonder what your spouse or children would say. Is mum or dad, your husband or wife, an angry person? Or what about your school friends or your work colleagues? those that live and interact with you every day? Would they describe you as being an angry person? Being angry in and of itself is not a sin. After all, Jesus got angry when he cleansed the temple. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we are to be angry, but when we do, be angry, Paul says, and... Not sin. In fact, he went even further than that and he said, I think one of the most um, bit of pastoral advice, one of the greatest pastoral bits of advice I think I've ever heard. He said, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Because anger that is not resolved quickly can be one of the most destructive forces of all. Sweeping under the carpet, you might think that it actually resolves it, but it doesn't. It turns it into a nuclear bomb. So clearly, you can be angry without sinning. But there is a type of angry disposition which is sinful and of the flesh, where we are characterized by being hot-tempered or easily angered. And that's something which is definitely not in keeping with God's will. When I was a young minister, I once rang up uh, an older minister. Uh, He was in the Uniting Church in the town uh, near where I lived. I rang him up and uh, to my shame, I blasted him for something that he had written about me in the local newspaper. Now, while he was clearly in the wrong... I delighted in ringing him up and giving him what for. Now, I'm not saying that he was right. What he said and what he wrote about me was actually really, really bad. But how I conducted myself that day to him on the phone was clearly wrong and not honouring to God. And he said to me at one point, quoting the Apostle James, You know, Mark, a man's anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God requires. I was immediately convicted as to the sinfulness of my actions. For I was using my sense of righteous indignation as a cover for my ungodly behavior and attitude. But what about you? Would you describe yourself as given to fits of rage or regular outbursts of anger? Maybe you've already had one this morning in getting everybody ready for church. It seems that one of the greatest times of spiritual battle and warfare during the week is Sunday morning while you're trying to get all the children ready in the car. I once knew of a man that was having a major argument with his wife. And he said, let's get in the car. This is in the middle of the week. And we go, where are we going? He goes, don't worry, I'll show you. And so they drove through the streets, got to the church car park. And she goes, what are we doing here? And he goes, well, it always seems to resolve our conflict. (laughs) So I thought I'd bring you here. The issue of anger comes up quite a bit in Jonah chapter 4. And it reveals something significant about the state of our hearts. Because anger is always a symptom of something which is going on much deeper inside of us. And for Jonah, it's uncovered by God through three distinct questions. Questions which I wonder whether you yourself can relate to. In fact, I'm sure you can at least to one of them. Obviously, the Lord doesn't need to know the answers to these questions. He already knows them. But he asks them, and the reason why he does is because he wants Jonah and he wants us to understand what it is that we're angry about. The first question involves the issue of God's character in verses 1 to 4. If you still have your Bibles open, have a look at this with me. You see, we're told in verse 1 that Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry because the Lord, what? He decided to have mercy on Nineveh. Jonah has witnessed the greatest revival in the history of the world and all he wants to do is die. Verse 10 of chapter 3, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. There's actually a play on words here in the original language of the Bible that we miss in our English translations. Verse 1 literally says that Jonah perceived how the Lord responded to the Ninevites. This is how, this is how Jonah responds as exceedingly evil. It's the same word that is used in chapter 3 verses 8 and verse 10 to describe what the Ninevites had repented of. That is, they had turned from their evil ways. And yet Jonah perceived what the Lord had done as actually being evil. He wanted justice. And he wanted it now. It's amazing when you think about it, and you really think about it, that the Lord didn't strike him dead right then and there. Especially when you consider all that the Lord has done for this rebellious prophet from rescuing him from a storm, from rescuing him from the ocean, from rescuing him from a great fish. Jonah is full of anger and bitterness. He even has the audacity to say to the Lord in verse two, Oh Lord, is this not what I said while we were still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that this was what you were going to do. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. It seems like Jonah is a little bit oblivious to the slow to anger bit because Jonah is nothing but sullen and angry all the way through the book. So much for being like the Lord whom he serves But as the Lord says to him, do you have any right to respond in this way? I mean, it's not like the Ninevites were sinning against him. We used to have this poster in the university where I attended in the United States, which said there's two basic facts about the universe. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you are not him. You see, ultimately, all sin is against the Lord. Jonah, though, once again wants to die. He doesn't want to go on living because, well, he has given up his hope in the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, have you ever felt that way with God? You've been angry and bitter with him because maybe he hasn't given you the things you want. Maybe he's even allowed other people to have the things that you yourself desire but have had to go without. You know, a lot of young people go through this kind of thing when they don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse, I've noticed. They think that it's so unfair and so unjust that they become angry with God and they think that he's not good. And even worse, I think, they settle for second best. You know, you'll always lose your sense of contentment, friends, if you keep comparing yourself to others. You'll always lose it. If you stop seeking the Lord and put your faith in things, they will profoundly disappoint you. Are you angry at present with God? Doubting or questioning his love, his character? Maybe even secretly accusing him of being evil rather than good. He's only brought you to this place that you're in right now because he doesn't really care and you really wish you could just die. The second question posed to Jonah is closely aligned to this. And are we angry with God's ways? You might stop, fall short of saying, well, God himself is good, but I don't like what he's doing. Jonah finds a place on the outskirts of the city. If it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. God has had mercy on this great city and so how does Jonah respond? He's all sullen and angry, storms off onto the hillside, sits down, sulks, builds himself a shelter because he thinks I'm going to be here for a while and we'll just wait and see if God changes his mind. Because the entire God of the universe who's so slow to anger and abounding in love might just change his mind for this sullen and angry and disgruntled prophet. So he sits on the side of the hill like a petulant child where he thinks God might do something different. God might act like he wants him to act. Verse 5 tells us that he even built a shelter, which is ironic because the Israelites had a festival each year where they built shelters, remember, to celebrate their own deliverance out of Egypt. So here is this particular Israelite building his own little shelter Not to celebrate God's salvation, but to maybe in the hope that God, he can see and celebrate and witness God's judgment. And remember, he's just seen the greatest revival in the history of the world. Jonah wants to see the people of Nineveh judged. I think you could even go more than that. Jonah wants to see the people of Nineveh damned. It's hard to imagine someone being more hard-hearted or angry, isn't it? But in his slow to anger way, the Lord provides for Jonah another couple of miracles. This time, it's a plant that miraculously grows up overnight and provides Jonah with shade. And for the first time in the entire book, Jonah is happy. He's been given some slight relief from his discomfort from the sun and all of a sudden he's okay. Not after the calming of the storm, not after being rescued from death from the great fish and definitely not after the entire city of Nineveh has turned from their wickedness and cried out to the Lord. No, the first and only time Jonah is recorded as being happy is when his personal circumstances are to his liking. When he's prospering in life, while still being angry with the Lord at what he has done and who he is. But just as the Lord gives, he also takes away. The second miracle. The very next day, we're told that the Lord provided a fast-acting worm to chew the vine and totally chop it down. That's just, there's just one miracle after another in the book of Jonah. Everybody seems to overlook the speed in which this supernaturally empowered worm went to work. But this is a worm on steroids. I mean, people who have survived, we know this, from being three days in the belly of a fish But who's ever heard of one worm destroying a massive plant overnight? And then not only that, the third miracle is God provides this scorching east wind. Just take a look at the interaction between the Lord and Jonah, though, in verse 9. Because once again, it involves a question which exposes the true state of Jonah's heart of whether or not he really trusts in the Lord or the things which the Lord provides for him. Verse 9, But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. What is it with Jonah and this constant death wish? There's probably a bit more going on here than Jonah simply enjoying the shade and beauty of a plant. Because in the Bible, a vine is often the chief metaphor for the nation of Israel. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ himself refers to himself as the vine in John 15. But significantly, this is the only time in the entire Old Testament that this particular term is used. It's a one-off. Because it basically means a fruitless vine or gourd. As I said, I think it's used as a metaphor for the nation of Israel. And especially how they had become spiritually fruitless due to their moral corruption they were just all leaves and no fruit but here's the thing well here's the question what the lord is doing then in chapter four is he's showing jonah that just as he had the privilege of growing up and enjoying the vine's shade Just as he had grown up under Israel and enjoyed all the blessings of his spiritual heritage, if all of those blessings, if all of those blessings and, and privileges were taken away and God should remove the vine, has Jonah any right to be angry? How would Jonah feel if the Lord decided to judge his own people like he had been threatening to do? through Micah and Isaiah to kick them out of the promised land due to their own moral evil and wickedness that unlike Nineveh, they wouldn't repent of? Would Jonah have any right to be angry if God did that? Well, as you know, Jonah's response is yes. Yes, he would. I would rather die then see my whole nation taken into exile. It's an object lesson for Jonah. On an individual level, I think what God is going to do on a national level. Jonah would be so upset about that particular situation, which God has repeatedly warned against, that he would be giving up all hope and just want to die. Now... I think it's important to stop and reflect on this for a moment, for all of us. As I've gotten to know people here at Cornerstone, I have heard from many a person who is carrying, I think, deep scars and hurts from experiences that you've had at previous churches. And this involves incidents from every denomination. Baptist, Anglican, Presbyterian. A former church has acted badly and perhaps even closed. And the pain associated with that can be severe and it can be long-lasting, can't it? There may have been times where when you were going through that, like Jonah... You might have been so disappointed, so sad, so angry, that you never thought about going to church again. And can I just say, I'm really sorry if that has happened to you. But can I also say, if that's you, then I'm thrilled that, like the people that were standing up here at the front this morning, that you're here with us and that you haven't given up on following Christ. Because the Lord has not given up on you and he definitely hasn't given up on his kingdom. His plans and purposes, they haven't ceased and they haven't failed even when a church has problems or even when a church closes. Because the plant that he provides and causes to grow, sometimes is the same plant that he decides to remove or cut down. If you don't believe me, then just take a look at what the Lord Jesus says to each of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. He walks amongst his lampstands. He threatens the church at Ephesus. Do you remember this? Because they have forsaken their first love, he says, if you do not repent, what will he do? I will remove your lampstand. Now we all think, wow, what a serious threat. Do you realize that a hundred years after that was written, there was no more church in Ephesus? Jesus wasn't kidding. So we should expect the shade or something of something that God has constructed, whether it be a plant or whether it be a building, you should not expect it to always be there. But if you continue to be angry and bitter about it, then it's actually revealing something which you need to change and address in yourself rather than God. The third final question sums up the entire book. Just take a look with me again at what the Lord says to Jonah in verses 10 to 11. Because the saddest situation of all is when we are angry with God's people. Verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, which you did not tend to or make it grow, sprang up overnight, died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? You know, I don't know if you've already seen this and made this connection, but the book of Jonah ends on exactly the same note as Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Do you notice how the oldest son in Luke 15, how did he respond to the father's grace towards his younger brother? He was filled with anger. Notice in particular what Jesus says in verse 28 and following of Luke 15. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes in, you kill the fattened calf for him. See how full of anger and bitterness he is? Why? Because somebody has been shown grace. Because his brother has come home. Then the father says to him, my son... You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, just like the book of Jonah, we're never actually told what the older brother did next. Did he come in And celebrate with his family? Did he join the party? Or did he stay outside and sulk? Did he build a shelter off from the family homestead? Maybe waiting for the father to change his mind and kick him out of home? If you analyze the passage carefully, you'll see that the older son always saw himself not as a son, but as a slave. All these years, I've been slaving for you. Whereas the father viewed him as his beloved child, who he said, everything I have is yours. You don't even need to take half of the inheritance. It's all yours. You see, friends, can I just say this? There are not two ways to live. There's three. There is either religion, rebellion, or relationship. You see, we're either like the younger son that goes off and is rebellious and squanders our inheritance, sowing our wild oats, doing all kinds of, quite frankly, stupid things. But the other way to rebel against God is religion. And to think, well, I'm so righteous. I'm so good. I've never disobeyed God. I'm so much better than everybody else. I deserve your love. I deserve your blessing." And you can be just as estranged from the father as the older brother was. You see? Or there's relationship of coming in and knowing God's grace, his love and his forgiveness through his own son that he sacrificed for us. Not only that, back to this parable, notice the reason why the older son is upset because he he wanted things from the father so that he could celebrate with who? So he could celebrate with his dad? No, so he could celebrate with my friends. See, it's one thing for the younger son to say, Dad, can I please have my share of the inheritance now? If you don't think that's bad... If you're a child here, don't say this to your parents, right? Because it's basically saying, I can't wait for you to die. Can I just have it now? Not a good thing to say. But this young guy says, look, I just want some stuff, not so that I can celebrate with you and enjoy everything that we have together, but so I can even just celebrate with my friends. Because you know what? My friends and that relationship is much, much more important to me than yours. Oh, the heart that that, the, the heartache that that would give to any parent for their child to say that to them. But you know what I think the most upsetting thing of all is he didn't even view his younger brother as his sibling. He referred to him. Did you notice this? What he said to the father? But when this son of yours comes home, he doesn't even see himself. You see, his brother as his brother. Oh, the heartache of that. He's become completely estranged to everyone in his family. His brother is this son of yours, and his father is his boss, not his dad. The younger son wanted to come home and say, I no longer am worthy to be called your son. Please, can I just be like one of your hired men? And the older son who's never left home saying, I'm the best hired man you got. Oh, the tragedy in that perspective. But you know, tragically, so many Christians fall into exactly the same trap because this is a parable to us. This is a parable to religious people, to people that come to church regularly. It's being tempted to self-righteously look down on brothers and sisters in Christ, in church, rather than be willing to show them the same grace and forgiveness that we've received. It's the trap of being legalistic. And it's an ever-present danger. That's what's going on inside the heart of Jonah. He was happy when he was provided with a plant for shade, He rightly believed that God could create and calm great storms with just a word. It didn't even surprise him. And he could even rightly give praise to God when he was saved from certain death. He had the best evangelical theology there was. But what about extending that same grace and forgiveness to others? Was he doing that? Are you doing that? Or have you become so angry with those around you that you would prefer if the Lord maybe just showed a little bit more fire and brimstone than grace and mercy? You see, there's a little more Jonah and a lot more legalism in each of us than we like to admit. But if our attitude to church and God's people is characterised by anger, though, then we really have to ask some hard questions about ourselves. Are you angry with even anyone here at church? One of my lecturers at Bible College once told us about an incident involving a Sunday school teacher that he knew. Her lesson was about Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And she was telling the children how bad the sin of pride was because this Pharisee was clearly extremely legalistic and self-righteous. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I have. I'm not like this tax collector over here. (laughs) When it came to praying, though, with all the children, she prayed, this was her words, Lord, thank you that we are not all like this Pharisee. You see what she just did? She'd fallen into precisely the same trap and become just as proud as the Pharisee had become. When he ended the class, and often in class we'd end with prayer, he said, now, we've all got to be careful, gentlemen, not to pray, thank you, Lord, that we're not like this Sunday school teacher. (laughs) You see, pride has a really deceptive way of sneaking up on you. It can, make you, it can take you completely by surprise because it tempts you to make much of yourself and less of God. Much of yourself and less of God. You know, one of the interesting things about Jonah 4 is how many times the possessive personal pronoun I or my is used. In this one chapter, it's used something like nine times. Because it's all about Jonah. And in the same way, whenever we become obsessed with ourselves, our problems with others are big, and our view of God and his people is small. Actually, he and they, God and his people, had become downright annoying. And we often in those situations, don't we? We think the worst of them both. But when we become like that, we're blind to the fact that we're no longer loving God or our neighbour as ourself. What would you say if I asked whether or not you are an angry person? What would your spouse or children say? What about your school friends? We work colleagues. Let's pray that the Lord gives us the grace to not only see ourselves for who we really are, but that He'd also give us the power to change. That He'd soften our hearts. That we'd live new and transformed lives in love for others in response to the love which He has first shown to us. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, you are a great and awesome God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Please forgive us Lord for our self-righteousness, for comparing ourselves to others, For doubting or or maybe even being angry with you, your ways and your people. For wanting judgment more than mercy. Lord, we marvel at how gracious you were to Jonah and we thank you for that example because that's what we need as well. We are just like him. So we pray, Lord, that you would so transform us by your gospel. That we wouldn't be characterized by anger, but that we'd be characterized by love, by gentleness, by meekness, by humility. Lord, we pray For those that have hurt us. That you would forgive us for not being forgiving. And that Lord, you would bless them. Bless them this day with your grace and your mercy. We pray for those churches which we have belonged to that have hurt us. That have disappointed us and let us down. Lord, we pray that you would bless them we pray that you would restore and renew your vine and that its shade would extend throughout the whole earth, producing not just shade and rest, but spiritual fruit. Father, as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table now, We pray that you'd give us that humility as we come empty-handed to receive again everything from you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we're going to stand and sing. And as we do, let's prepare our hearts to commune with God through his table. Let's stand.